sensation in sounds built to stimulate around the eyes. Greatest and greatest wellness trends, treatments, and experience. Work that Magnesium is naturally found in foods like This is the Well and Good Podcast. Tune in to find the wellness that fits your frequency. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Each fall here at Well and Good, we celebrate runners at every level with a program we call United States of Running. The program offers weekly 5K and 10K running plans that are accessible to beginners and seasoned marathoners alike. We're carrying this spirit into episodes of the podcast discussing the ways we move and how we got here. I'm Senior Director of Creative Development, Ella Dove, and today we're in conversation with Daniel Friedman, author of Let's Get Physical, a new book that discusses the history of women's fitness and sports, and why sometimes the culture of this world of fitness works to promote wellness and inclusion, while other times, even 50 years after the anniversary of laws like Title IX, it can seem to be working against itself. Fitness holds so much potential and it can, you know, movement, I should say, like has so much potential to do good and improve our mental health and our well-being. It's just, it's so bogged down and so much cultural baggage and so many, you know, toxic messages. And so by being aware of the history and some of these cultural forces, my hope is that we can begin to kind of separate the true benefits of movement from all of these more superficial and, and often quite toxic things. And so it's, it's really, it is heartening to see that start to happen. And, and I think, again, it's the, we're at the very beginning of the shift, but it's encouraging to see these communities arising. I am Danielle Friedman. I'm a journalist based in New York, and I am the author of a new cultural history of women in fitness called Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. Before we get into the book, can you tell us a little bit about your background? You know, what led you to this book, this story, this kind of history to begin with? The origin 
story for the book specifically is it was very organic. It began actually about five years ago when I decided to take my first bar class. There's a studio like a few blocks from me that I had walked past a billion times. And the slightly embarrassing reason is that I was getting married and I wanted to, you know, get in shape (laughs) as it were for my wedding. I am also a feminist journalist. And so I sort of entered into that space still wearing my feminist journalist hat. So long story short, I loved how bar made me feel. I had never sort of felt that strong top to bottom, but I was also kind of intrigued by the fact that many of the the moves were almost like comically kind of sexual. The thrusts and the pelvic you know, tilts and the the back dancing at the end. And so it actually, initially I thought, hmm, I wonder if there's a story to be written about how bar benefits sexual health. But as I started digging, I stumbled on the story of Lottie Burke, the woman who created bar in the late 1950s in London. Hello, I'm Lotte Burke. I have created my exercises to help you to achieve a youthful and shapely body. There is no need to be shapeless. Think what happens to your muscles if you don't use them. They seize up and make you shapeless, but in order to be a firm and shapely body, you must never stop exercising. And I couldn't believe what I was reading. I mean, she was this incredibly colorful, flawed, complicated, larger-than-life figure who, sure enough, did partially create bar to encourage women to kind of connect with their sexuality and physicality and to improve their sex lives. And so I decided to write about Lottie. I wrote about Lottie Burke for The Cut. And while I was researching that story, at one point I thought, I'd love to talk to the person who wrote the book about the history of women's fitness. And I was really shocked to discover that that book didn't exist. So it was kind of an immediate aha moment. I was like, oh my God, I I have to tell this story. And I pretty quickly discovered that there was kind of like a Lottie Burke-like figure behind almost every enduring movement of women's fitness throughout the 20th century up till today. And I also saw it as a really important aspect of women's history that had been overlooked until then. You know, the story of how we went from a country where, and I can talk more about this, but sweating was unladylike and there were all sorts of fears about what vigorous exercise could do to a woman's body to the world we live in today, where it is, you know, women's fitness is everywhere. But instead of just being like, and this is what happened next, you know, basically each chapter focuses on the birth of a different movement the women or women who pioneered it and really looks at how that workout was emblematic of a particular era. That's incredible. I am getting married in about a month and a half and I was cracking up when I first opened the book or first started reading the book because I had a very similar kind of journey or I'm in the middle of a very similar journey where it is so true. You're like getting ready for this big event. You're like, I don't want to enter into this space feeling like I don't feel like my best self, but it is complicated and uh, a value test on many, many levels. So I really appreciated that. But that was an incredible segue into really where I want to start. And that's just how you chose the women, the women that you did choose to highlight for each chapter. And if you could kind of take us through kind of each, each woman that you highlighted and like 
what that moment was where you discovered their story. Just on a kind of overarching level, I really try to focus on the the women and the movements that have had an enduring legacy. So, you know, fitness is full of so many fads and kind of flash in the pan <laughs> workouts which are fascinating on their own, but I really wanted to look at the women who laid the groundwork for how we move today and the opportunities that we have today. So my book begins in the 1950s with a woman named Bonnie Pruden, who was once really widely known. She was a celebrity and, and kind of known as the, the godmother of women's fitness in this country for the sake of brevity, <laughs> I will say. Um, Bonnie, in many ways, really helped to lay the groundwork for the way that we think about women and fitness today. At that time, in the post-World War II era, um, it was a time of really rigid gender norms. And so for the most part, it was considered inappropriate for women to to exercise in a way that was anything more than just kind of gentle postural exercises and stretches and, and to seek out strength because at that time, strength was really associated with masculinity. Remember, here's another important exercise. To keep the bust firm and youthful, put your hands behind your back and pull down, stretch, ooh, and release. That firms the tummy muscles and the bust and the hip line. But Bonnie helped to change that by evangelizing about the fact that men and women and children actually could benefit from building muscle, from becoming strong. At the same time, you know, she was a woman of her era and she also helped to kind of sell the idea that exercise could be a beauty tool. One of her one of her famous catchphrases was under every curve, there's a muscle, no muscle, no curve. And so her chapter is called Reduce, which really speaks to the kind of complicated empowerment that she gave women. Exactly, exactly. And Reduce, you know, at the time was a euphemism for losing weight. Um, and just women in general were encouraged kind of across the board during that time to make themselves smaller, largely for men's comfort. Heading into the 1960s is when I talk about Lottie Burke and Barr. And part of what made her story so fascinating is that she was really this fixture of the swinging 60s um, and sort of like a foremother to the sexual revolution during that time. In addition to just her contributions to fitness, like many of the women I write about, there is this sort of element of glamour to her story too, because her little tiny inaugural bar studio attracted all of these like really glamorous celebrities of the era. So in my chapter on the birth of women's running and women's running really took off in this country in the 1970s, I mostly focus on Catherine Switzer, who is just this incredibly inspiring figure for, you know, people, listeners who don't know her story. She, um, she first kind of rose to prominence because she crashed the Boston Marathon in 1967 when it was still only open to men. A record field of 601 starters, brave chilly winds and a steady drizzle in the 71st Boston Marathon. 
The world's most famous foot race even attracts a leggy lady, Kay Switzer of Syracuse. Officials tried to jostle her off the road. She managed to get a number, and a few miles into the course, um, one of the race's directors got wind of the fact that there was a woman in his race. He he lurched onto the course. He tried to physically remove her number. He basically assaulted her, and um, she kept going, you know, and, and photos of the incident made their way around the world and really fueled her cause. I was sitting in McCarran Park reading this and you're, you know, I'm sitting there watching all these people run by, everybody's running, I'm not. I was like, wow, it was really powerful. I was just going to say, they, the justification for banning women for so long was that it was, you know, dangerous for a woman to run longer than two miles because it could make her uterus fall out. <laughs> um, uh, so we have come a long way in some regards. Um, yeah. heading into, well, this sort of, it overlapped a little bit, but also heading into the eighties, I talk about the birth of aerobic dancing, which then became known as aerobics, which was just, you know, I can't really overstate what a huge movement it was in this country. Um, partly because for women, um, women who maybe felt like running, which was also a very public activity or other forms of exercise, maybe even like doing pushups for women who felt that that was a little too, a little too subversive, a little, they weren't really interested in breaking any gender barriers themselves. Dancing felt appropriate, even though it was sweaty uh, and they were working their bodies often in ways that they hadn't before. It was, it was, you know, it fell within the acceptable lines of femininity. So I decided initially to focus on, because it's kind of an evolving story, but uh, Judy Shepard Missit, who invented jazzercise. We're going to do some jazzercise that'll keep you fit and smiling, sugar. In your Swing that off. And through jazzercise, I mean, she really helped to, to a large extent, to kind of democratize women's fitness a, early jazzercise classes were taught in like rec centers and church basements and the history of women's fitness. It is a history of, of exclusion. You know, women's fitness has really historically been targeted toward um, upper and middle-class white women uh, with disposable income, but jazzercise helped to, it took some of the first steps to to bring fitness beyond just sort of these sort of elite exclusive realms and, and really spread it to the masses. Some other figures behind iconic movements are household names like Jane Fonda, but many more that built the classes that have become synonymous with fitness today are less commonly known. From there, I go into Jane Fonda, who opened her first workout studio in the late 1970s. Step aerobics are a great way to tone and firm the lower body and get fit, burn fat calories, and have fun, too. She helped to bring fitness to an even wider global audience. From there, I talk about the birth of women's strength training, and I focus in that chapter really on two women, a woman named Lisa Lyon, who won one of the first contemporary women's bodybuilding competitions in the late 70s in this country. And then I, I profiled Tammy Lee Webb, who was the main star of the Buns of Steel and Abs of Steel series. Welcome to Buns of Steel Step 2000, one of our high-energy fat burner workouts from the Buns of Steel 
2000 Platinum Series. Which by the early 90s was just like a cultural force. And then in the yoga chapter, I look at Indra Devi, who's sort of credited with bringing yoga to Western women. She literally and figuratively like demystified it. And then I looked at Lilius Folin, who had a very long running PBS show called Lilius Yoga and You that aired right after Sesame Street. So let us begin. Atta Yoga Anushasana. And now we begin the journey. And so a lot of moms who were home with their kids just sort of kept the TV on and discovered yoga through her. And finally, from there, I move into the present day. Not surprisingly, a theme throughout the whole book is how exercise was continually, as women gained more opportunities, the um, the body and beauty ideals for women kind of inched further out of reach. And so we're now in a moment when we're beginning to see, you know, some real pushback against that. And just starting to understand, I think, or to expand our understanding of, of what a fit body can look like. And I, I, I focus on a few contemporary pioneers in that chapter, but um, I'd say the primary person I look at is Jessamine Stanley, the yoga superstar, um, who is, you know, really redefining what a fitness influencer can be, can look like, can stand for, and leading the way, inspiring many other women to follow in her footsteps. It's a very slow shift and it is slow going and we are working on it at this moment. But there is a shift from wellness as a like club sport, as a trend toward wellness as a survival tactic. And ultimately, all human beings have to focus on their wellness because our bodies are machines just like anything else that you own. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Looking back at the history of women's fitness made me think of the moment we're in right now. 
Are we just at a point in a cycle that will continue to repeat? Or are we finally moving to a more inclusive fitness landscape? Ending on Jessamine, I think really spoke wonders to what has happened in fitness because so often a spotlight is given to a predominantly small white contingent that is too often credited with shaping many movements. Now it sort of feels like a shift is finally being made to expand the seat to the table. And the idea of health at every size is hopefully where the future of wellness is going and will stay. One thing I found really interesting about the book or one of the many things I found really interesting about the narrative was how much um, of an impact women had on fitness for everyone and not just women. You know, it was also men weren't necessarily being taught to take care of themselves outside of athletics. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the burden women carried or the sort of responsibility women took on to sort of shape the way we all take care of ourselves in this country? You're absolutely right. So exercise for women was, you know, seen as sort of subversive and radical because of its implications with strength and sweat and fears around women's bodies. But for everyone, for men too, um, the cultural mindset was that basically everyone was trying to prioritize comfort, um, you know, and the the what they called the modern way of life, which included push button appliances and new ranch homes that didn't involve climbing stairs. So the idea that like after coming home from work, you you know, someone would choose to work up a sweat and work their body simply for health or for, um, for joy was, was considered like almost ridiculous. You know, there was as much fear, probably more fear around overexerting yourself than underexerting yourself. Some people still believed that we were born with a limited number of heartbeats, you know, and you didn't want to use them up. And so there were a lot of cultural myths and stigmas that the early exercise evangelists were up against. You touched on something really important, which is that for a, for a long time, I mean, and I think this is still true today, but particularly in the 1950s and 1960s, women really were expected to carry the burden of their entire family's health and, you know, not only look after her own health, um, but but the entire family's as well. So it was it was a lot of pressure. <laughs> And do you think we would have seen kind of the phenomenon that is boutique digital fitness today if it wasn't for women and the kind of establishments they created towards fitness? Like without Bonnie Brew and without Lottie Burke, do you think we would have the Barry's boot camps today? I think without the women's fitness pioneers that I write about, you know, we would not have the the fitness landscape that we have today. We would not have seen the surge in boutique fitness that we saw starting in the early 2000s. Um, To give credit where credit's due, um, there were many other factors, but I do think that women certainly helped to create the industry that we we have today. Yeah, for better or for worse, potentially. And on the note of sort of for better or for worse, you know, as somebody who loves fitness and I really, it's a huge part of my life, my own experience with fitness has changed a lot in the last 10 years. My experience, I think, is really representative with what a lot of people kind of confronted who had the privilege to access these sort of expensive Mm. boutique fitness classes before the pandemic. We got sent home and we had to kind of find out how to move for ourselves. I 
almost see it as like a correction to an overcorrection, which was the boutique fitness boom. We went to these really hard, intense classes. And then, then you're paying a lot for your recovery classes and it just all became so much. Do you think that this is sort of a pendulum that's been swinging back and forth since the dawn of fitness as we know it? Do you think we're going to see another overcorrection from the current sort of slowdown? The industry was really born in the in the 1960s. However, I will say for the first time now, I think we are starting to see history repeat itself. And specifically, like with the birth of running and aerobics and lifting, um, there was this build that really peaked in like, I would say the late eighties and heading into the nineties, people were feeling burnt out. They had gotten injured from so much high impact aerobics. And so that really helped to fuel the explosion and rise of yoga and Pilates in this country. So it's really interesting to look at it through that lens, um, because I think that, you know, we're seeing a similar cycle. There was, you know, so there was like the, the slow burn or the feeling the burn and then the cool down. And then in the early 2000s, particularly as millennials, who I think are so conditioned to kind of try to self-optimize and hustle, really embraced these high intensity boot camp or um, just really difficult, you know, boutique fitness classes. And then with the pandemic, now we're seeing, you know, an another cool down. I, I mean, optimistically, I hope that this is actually the beginning of more, I don't know, a more lasting expansion of our understanding of, of again, what fitness can be. One of the many reasons why it has excluded so many people for so long is because it's expensive the way that we have interpreted it. There's also this idea that to be involved in fitness, you have, you know, you not only have to have like an expensive membership, but you have to wear the right clothes. You have to mm-hmm. make it part of your identity in this kind of consuming lifestyle that was really prohibitive for a lot of people. So during the pandemic, you know, there's been a lot of talk about kind of the great resignation, how people are leaving their jobs, they're they're getting off like the treadmill of life. <laughs> and I think we're seeing that in fitness as well. Walking has seen like this huge surge in popularity, which I love. And, and I, I actually have kind of discovered it myself. And I'm so grateful for that. And so yeah. maybe, yeah, I hope we're heading toward a more just kind of reasonable approach to fitness that we can work to make more inclusive. Yeah. I I hope so as well, because I think something that you just said that really sticks out to me is this idea that our fitness can be so tied to your identity. Why why do you think it is that fitness, out of all the things that we attach to in society, becomes such a core piece of like who, what we are, what we say we do, um, Mm. why fitness and not, you know, art or anything else that we're maybe picking up and putting down after this day closes? Well, I see it as kind of going back to the 1980s. During that time, fitness became really imbued with a sense of worth. So like a fit body was viewed as a worthy body, a virtuous body. One of Jane Fonda's catchphrases was discipline is liberation, which I spent a lot of time thinking about. And whoa, it's just like a very loaded concept, you know? And um, it also fed into long-standing 
cultural biases against larger bodies, fatness, working hard, working out, industry was seen as praiseworthy. And so then if you look at, okay, what's the opposite side of that? Like someone who didn't work out or didn't look like they worked out was viewed as less than. At the same time, we're also searching for community as like the world has become more digital. Many of us have found real community, real social support in fitness spaces. And when you think about boutique fitness, do you think that the target is changing away from the exclusive skinny white women in pricey athleisure to something more relatable and attainable? I think it's changing very, very incrementally. I was actually just sort of doing some research on a specific aspect of this. And I think it's something like 71% of fitness instructors are still white. Um, and I think there's been, you know, there's that's, that's an improvement over like 30 years ago, but clearly we have so much um, more work to do there. I do think that social media has really helped to just increase body diversity, foster some inclusivity by allowing fitness influencers to kind of circumvent traditional power structures, the power structures, you know, the pop culture structures that, that really only elevated thin white women for so long. And women like Jessamine and, and many of the other sort of fitness influencers of color who've risen over the past few years are creating such a needed community that just has been lacking for so long. And so mm -hmm. people are, you know, kind of calling bullshit on that now. We're starting to identify the problem and little by little, I think there are, there are some improvements that are being made. Yeah. And have you found and kind of your research around this, are there, you know, good positive strides being made for but binary individuals, gender mm -hmm. non-conforming, what does that look like in the fitness landscape? Because that's obviously something, it's not just man versus woman, it's a much broader spectrum of people who don't necessarily feel like there's a space for them in class. I actually, I recently wrote a piece for the New York Times about um, trauma-informed weightlifting. So people who are finding that weightlifting is a really powerful tool in helping them work through trauma and supporting their mental health. And in reporting that piece, I interviewed a few folks who are connected with lifting gyms that are specifically for, um, you know, gender non-binary, trans, queer lifters. And those conversations were really powerful because, you know, many of the people I spoke with told me that they had never felt comfortable in traditional, particularly actually lifting environments, but gym environments. And once they created a space that was sort of so explicitly inclusive and, and for other people in the same shoes that they were in, it, it was more, you know, it was more transformative and helpful than they ever could have imagined. And so that's just, I mean, this kind of speaks to a theme that was really important to me to communicate, which is that fitness holds so much potential and it can, you know, movement, I should say, like has so much potential to do good and improve our mental health and our well-being. It's just, it's so bogged down and so much cultural baggage and so many, you know, toxic messages. And so by being aware of the history and some of these cultural forces, my hope is that we can begin to kind of um, 
separate the the true benefits of movement from all of these more superficial and, and often quite toxic things. And so it's it's really, it is heartening to see that start to happen. And, and I think, you know, again, it's the, we're at the very beginning of the shift, but it's encouraging to see these communities arising. On today's show, you heard me in conversation with Danielle Friedman. This episode was scripted in part by Haley Pascalides and produced by Taylor Camille, Abby Stone, and myself, Ella Dev, along with many other hands and brains here at Well and Good. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share. Mixing and scoring by our friends at Edit Audio, and our theme music was created by Madeline Lukomsky and Matt Dynamenko. Our show art was designed by Jenna Gibson and Karina Masonette. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.